Chapter 6 of Book 3 of Les Miserables, Volume 2 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jacqueline Provo. Les Miserables, Volume 2 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 3, Accomplishment of the Promise Made to the Dead Woman. Chapter 6, which possibly proves Bolletrul's intelligence. On the afternoon of that same Christmas day, 1823, a man had walked for rather a long time in the most deserted part of the Boulevard de l'Hôpital in Paris. This man had the air of a person who is seeking lodgings, and he seemed to halt by preference at the most modest houses on the dilapidated border of the Faubourg Saint-Marceau. We shall see further on that this man had, in fact, hired a chamber in that isolated quarter. This man, in his attire, as in all his person, realized the type of what may be called the well-bred mendicant, extreme wretchedness combined with extreme cleanliness. This is a very rare mixture which inspires intelligent hearts with the double respect which one feels for the man who is very poor and for the man who is very worthy. He wore a very old and very well-brushed round hat, a coarse coat, worn perfectly threadbare, of an ochre yellow, a color that was not in the least eccentric at that epoch, a large waistcoat with pockets of a venerable cut, black breeches, worn gray at the knee, stockings of black worsted, and thick shoes with copper buckles. He would have been pronounced a preceptor in some good family, returned from the emigration, he would have been taken for more than sixty years of age from his perfectly white hair, his wrinkled brow, his livid lips, and his countenance, where everything breathed depression and weariness of life. Judging from his firm tread, from the singular vigor which stamped all his movements, he would have hardly been thought fifty. The wrinkles on his brow were well placed, and would have disposed in his favor any one who observed him attentively. His lip contracted with a strange fold which seemed severe, and which was humble. There was in the depth of his glance an indescribable melancholy serenity. In his left hand he carried a little bundle tied up in a handkerchief. In his right he leaned on a sort of a cudgel, cut from some hedge. This stick had been carefully trimmed and had an air that was not too threatening. The most had been made of its knots, and it had received a coral-like head made from red wax. It was a cudgel, and it seemed to be a cane. There are but few passers-by on the boulevard, particularly in the winter. The man seemed to avoid them rather than to seek them, but this without any affectation. At that epoch, King Louis the Eighteenth went nearly every day to Choisy-le-Roi. It was one of his favorite excursions. Towards two o'clock, almost invariably, the royal carriage and cavalcade was seen to pass at full speed along the boulevard de l'Hôpital. This served in lieu of a watch or clock to the poor woman of the quarter who said, It is two o'clock. There he is returning to the Toilere. And some rushed forward and others drew up in line, for a passing king always creates a tumult. Besides, the appearance and disappearance of Louis Eighteenth produced a certain effect in the streets of Paris. It was rapid but majestic. This impotent king had a taste for a fast gallop. As he was not able to walk, he wished to run. The cripple would gladly have had himself drawn by the lightning. He passed pacific and severe in the midst of naked swords. His massive couch, all covered with gilding, with great branches of lilies painted on the panels, thundered noisily along. There was hardly time to cast a glance upon it. In the rear angle on the right there was 
visible on tufted cushions of white satin a large, firm, and ruddy face, a brow freshly powdered, a lustre royal, a proud, hard, crafty eye, the smile of an educated man, two great epaulets with fringed bullion floating over a bourgeois coat, the golden fleece, the cross of St. Louis, the cross of the Legion of Honor, the silver plaque of the St. Esprit, a huge belly and a wide blue ribbon. It was the king. Outside of Paris, he held his hat decked with white ostrich plumes on his knees and wrapped in high English gaiters. When he re-entered the city, he put on his hat and saluted rarely. He stared coldly at the people, and they returned it in kind. When he appeared for the first time in the St. Marceau quarter, the whole success which he produced is contained in this remark of an inhabitant of the Faubourg to his comrade. That big fellow yonder is the government. This infallible passage of the king at the same hour was therefore the daily event of the Boulevard de l'Hôpital. The promenader in the yellow coat evidently did not belong in the quarter, and probably did not belong in Paris, for he was ignorant as to this detail. When at two o'clock the royal carriage, surrounded by a squadron of the bodyguard all covered with silver lace, debouched on the boulevard after having made the turn of the Salptrier, he appeared surprised and almost alarmed. There was no one but himself in this cross lane. He drew up hastily behind the corner of the wall of an enclosure, though this did not prevent Monsieur le Duc de Havre from spying him out. Monsieur le Duc de Havre, as captain of the guard on duty that day, was seated in the carriage opposite the king. He said to his majesty, Yonder is an evil-looking man. Members of the police who were clearing the king's route took equal note of him. One of them received an order to follow him, but the man plunged into the deserted little streets of the Faubourg, and as twilight was beginning to fall, the agent lost trace of him, as is stated in a report addressed that same evening to Monsieur le Comte d'Anglais, Minister of State, Prefect of Police. When the man in the yellow coat had thrown the agent off his track, he redoubled his pace, not without turning round many a time to assure himself that he was not being followed. At a quarter past four, that is to say, when night was fully come, he passed in front of the theatre of the Port St. Martin, where the two convicts was being played that day. This poster, illuminated by the theatre's lantern, struck him, for although he was walking rapidly, he halted to read it. An instant later he was in the blind alley of La Planchette, and he entered the pewter platter where the office of the coach for Lagny was then situated. This coach set out at half-past four. The horses were harnessed and the travelers summoned by the coachman were hastily climbing the lofty iron ladder of the vehicle. The man inquired, Have you a place? Only one beside me on the box, said the coachman. I will take it. Climb up. Nevertheless, before setting out, the coachman cast a glance at the traveler's shabby dress, at the diminutive size of his bundle, and made him pay his fare. "'Are you going as far as Lagny?' demanded the coachman. "'Yes,' said the man. The traveler paid to Lagny. They started. When they had passed the barrier, the coachman tried to enter into conversation, but the traveler only replied in monosyllables. The coachman took to whistling and swearing at his horses. The coachman wrapped himself up in his cloak. It was cold. The man did not appear to be thinking of that. Thus they passed Gournay and Lulay sur Marne. Toward six o'clock in the evening they reached Shell. The coachman drew up in front of the carter's inn and stalled in the ancient buildings of the royal abbey to give his horses a breathing spell. I get down here, said the man. He took his bundle and his cudgel and jumped down from the vehicle. An instant later he had disappeared. He did not enter the inn. When the coach set out for Lagny a few minutes later, it did not encounter him in the principal streets of Shell. The coachman turned to the inside travelers. 
There, said he, is a man who does not belong here, for I do not know him. He had not the air of owning a sou, but he does not consider money. He pays to Lagny, and he goes only as far as Shell. It is night, all the houses are shut, he does not enter the inn, and he is not to be found. So he has dived through the earth. The man had not plunged into the earth, but he had gone with great strides through the dark down the principal street of Shell. Then he had turned to the right before reaching the church and to the cross leading to Montfermeil like a person who was acquainted with the country and had been there before. He followed this road rapidly. At the spot where it intersected by the ancient tree-bordered road, which runs from Gagny to Lagny, he heard people coming. He concealed himself precipitately in a ditch, and there waited until the passers-by were at a distance. The precaution was nearly superfluous, however, for as we have already said, it was a very dark December night. Not more than two or three stars were visible in the sky. It is at this point that the ascent of the hill begins. The man did not return to the road to Montfermeil. He struck across the fields to the right, and entered the forest with long strides. Once in the forest, he slackened his pace and began a careful examination of all the trees advancing step by step, as though seeking and following a mysterious road known to himself alone. There came a moment when he appeared to lose himself, and he paused in indecision, at last he arrived, by dint of feeling his way inch by inch at a clearing where there was a heap of whitish stones. He stepped up briskly to these stones, and examined them attentively through the mists of night, as though he were passing them in review. A large tree, covered with these excrescences, which are the warts of vegetation, stood a few paces distant from the pile of stones. He went up to this tree, and passed his hand over the bark of the trunk, as though seeking to recognize and count all the warts. Opposite this tree, which was an ash, there was a chestnut tree, suffering from a peeling of the bark, to which a band of zinc had been nailed by way of dressing. He raised himself on tiptoe and touched the band of zinc. Then he trod about for a while on the ground comprised in the space between the tree and the heap of stones, like a person who is trying to assure himself that the soil has not recently been disturbed. That done, he took his bearings and resumed his march through the forest. It was the man who had just met Cosette. As he walked through the thicket in the direction of Montfermeil, he had espied that tiny shadow moving with a groan, depositing a burden on the ground, then taking it up and setting out again. He drew near and perceived that it was a very young child, laden with an enormous bucket of water. Then he approached the child and silently grasped the handle of the bucket. End of Book 3, Chapter 6 Recording by Jacqueline Provo, Richmond, Virginia